Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about that uh, Pentagon leak, those leaked documents. Uh, we're going to talk about what those documents, if true, mean for Ukraine's war effort. And then we're going to talk about the latest uh, coup attempt in Sudan. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have the French courts apparently approving Macron's pension reform. Uh, If you remember, Macron decided to enact these pension reforms in a way that bypassed the French parliament using the powers of the French executive, which is him. And this this kicked off a massive wave of even more protests and unrest than was already the norm for France. And some very interesting memes have come out of that where people are dining in a building and you can literally see the flames on the street. But with these reforms, he has raised the age of retirement in France to 64, which is two years up from 62 years Uh, in America. We're at like 65 or pushing 67, somewhere on that. Uh, So, I wonder where this is going to go for him. I'll just say that much. Uh, Because I I would say at some point the unrest has to result in something. But uh, the Yellow Vests have been protesting nonstop for a decade now. So, I'm not entirely sure of what will be accomplished until some new party comes into power. And even if they do, it remains to be seen what exactly they'll do. I mean, we have the that mag, that major coalition in Italy between the brothers Lega, and there was one more, I believe, Forza Italia, but major right wing coalition in Italy, and they immediately went straight back to the policy of giving free money and weapons to Ukraine. Now, granted, they're doing uh, they're making major differences on the domestic policy, and but with regards to foreign policy, they weren't much different. So, it's even when you have major shifts in the political ideology like that, it really just comes down to seeing is believing when it, when you're looking at change. So, whether or not a new party coming into power will actually do something about this and perhaps lower the age of retirement again. Maybe. I don't know if they will, or if they'll sort of just sit on their hands and go, Oh, what's done is done. And then give other concessions. Who knows? But we will see what becomes of this. Uh, Macron, meanwhile, on, on his uh, journey to China, when he was uh, separate from Ursula von der Leyen, when he was with uh, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping took him on a sort of a charm offensive, as some people are calling it. And now we have Macron saying that Europe should not be involved in the Taiwan issue. Now, you have some people being a a little upset by that. Some people saying he's, he's been bought out by the Chinese. But I mean, I've been saying as much about the Europeans since I started this podcast. 
it it just doesn't make sense for Europe to be involved in Asia. It really does. I mean, this is this is not the age of the European empires. France does not own Indochina anymore. They don't own Vietnam. They don't own Laos, Cambodia. They don't. They don't. They don't have their treaty port in China anymore. Like there is no excuse or or reasonable reason for the Europeans to be involved in the Taiwan dispute. And I remember talking about it. I forget if it was a year or two years ago when we were first discussing the the formation of these alliances that the United States was trying to put together to try to contain China. And it's, you see Germany pop up on the list and it's like, what exactly are the Germans going to do here? Like at a certain point, these ideas just become a fantasy land. Like you're going to, you're going to get Spain, Portugal, and the Netherlands to come along for the ride for a war in on literally the other side of their landmass. On literally the other side of the Eurasian landmass, like how? How? First of all, how are they going to get there? And second of all, what would they be doing there? What capacity does NATO have for doing anything of meaning in the South China Sea, let alone Taiwan? You could, you sure, you could say the UK via Australia and New Zealand. You could say that, and you can throw Australia and New Zealand in there as well because they live close by but how are the Europeans supposed to help in that conflict they it just it doesn't make sense to me so him saying this is really just repeating common sense now the China Hawks don't like that but the China Hawks are going to be in for a very rude awakening these next few months as well uh, next few months the next few years Uh, There's been talk about this being the moment that uh, France breaks away from American hegemony. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think that we're there yet. And the reason I don't think, I do not believe we are there yet is because France still hasn't given up on the idea, or at least Macron has not given up on the idea of a French hegemony in Europe. Like the French being the leaders of the EU instead of the Germans. He hasn't given up on the idea of a essentially a European federation. He hasn't, he hasn't given up on the idea of a united European bloc. He's still all in on that idea, but that idea is not going to work. And even if it could work, if France isn't going to be the one to lead it, it's going to be Germany. There's just no way around that. It's going to be Germany. If there is to be a united European bloc and the war in Ukraine is showing us just how not united Europe is. I mean, the Spanish and the Portuguese have continued their policy of pretending that they are not in NATO and pretending that they are not a part of the EU policy in this regard. And we saw that with energy policy when they were demanding everybody ration their gas and the Portuguese and Spanish were like, well, we don't get our gas from Russia. So why should we, why should we ration our stuff for you because you of your bad policies? Like I, I see the Iberian Peninsula breaking away and going their own way at some point as well. But France in particular has the unilateral option to do that, just as Britain does, because Britain's an island. They just have to negotiate trade deals. I do not see France being a major global power, and I simultaneously do not see France breaking out of U.S. hegemony until france decides to go its own way until that happens i don't see it 
because when it happens and you get a French and, and we'll know for certain that it has happened when you get a trade deal between the French and the Russians or the French and the Chinese, or perhaps even the French joining the Belt and Road, look, or the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, either one, until you get some major event like that, well, where the, the French are just fundamentally realigning themselves geostrategically to something that makes sense. Because NATO doesn't make sense. France getting involved in a war in Eastern Europe doesn't make sense, which is why they usually have never done that. They've only done it once, and that was under Napoleon. And all they and at that time, they had all of Europe under their control anyway. But when you get a strategic realignment that makes sense, which is France working with the big powers of Eurasia, which enables it to dominate the western part of Europe, until you get that, then we can't say definitively that the French have broken out from American hegemony. So, lots of uh, lots of talk about what this meeting between Macron and Xi Jinping means. It's a lot more mundane than what it could potentially be, but it might pave the way towards some of these speculations about the French breaking away. I do believe the French have some major potential, as I believe that a lot of the European countries have major potential particularly Britain, Iberia, and Germany. But they have to go their own they have to chart their own path to unlock that potential. The British have unlocked it and then through the, the and then they, they, they chose to sit and waste their time with the, the EU, the people that they literally just seceded from, instead of negotiating new deals with new countries and new partners. Brexit could be going magnificently for them right now, but they've dropped the ball deliberately. And so now they reap the consequences of that. But yeah, Europe does, if Macron's right, Europe should not be involved in the Taiwan issue. They should not be offering up defense for Taiwan. And quite frankly, neither should we. <laughs> we don't need to be over there anyway. I mean, we're, I'm pretty sure the United States is probably as far, if not farther away from Taiwan than France is. I could look that up right now. Perhaps I will uh, between segments. But either way, the distance is comparable. We have no business being over there. It's just that people who want to fight China want to fight China. And that's, that's literally it. There are no strategic interests on Taiwan for the United States or for Europe. So he's right. We should not be involved in the Taiwan issue. And that's that. Uh, but speaking of the United States and Asian allies, the U.S. is currently set to borrow 500,000 artillery shells from South Korea. Now, this is like they're either going to send these shells to Ukraine directly or, as Alexander of the Duran pointed out, they might just take these shells from South Korea and then send an equivalent amount of American artillery shells to Ukraine because there's been a bit of a holdup in South Korea over their laws and that they don't want to send weapons to this country, uh, this country being Ukraine. They don't want to get involved in the war. They, and they understand that sending weapons to someone makes you a party to the war. Uh, America hasn't uh, caught on to that. Certainly not American politicians. Uh, but... Yeah, they don't want to do that. So essentially, the United States is trying to act as an intermediary now 
for weapons. And it's it's incredible how we can act as an intermediary for, to give weapons for Ukraine, but we can't act as an intermediary for, I don't know, any other resource, like gas, oil. You know, we, we can't do any of that. Granted, not that we would need to, but just the the lengths that we can go to to give weapons to somebody if we did those same things for building up our own economy just imagine where we could have gone imagine if we were importing industrial goods from south korea japan china turning those industrial goods into new things and then exporting them you know creating a supply chain and then exporting in a, a uniquely american made product just an idea of the things we could be doing with all this effort and all this money that we're not. But yeah, half a million artillery shells the United States is currently on track to give to Ukraine and is trying to borrow half a million artillery shells from South Korea so that we don't just give away half a million, but it's sort of semi-accounted for. I mean, we're down to a point where we're talking years to decades to replenishing our supplies of weapons. Uh, Meanwhile, Ukraine, losing this war, has turned down mediation offers from Iraq, the latest country to offer mediation between Ukraine and Russia. The Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has visited Brazil, as Brazil, uh, under Lula, is seeking closer cooperation with the BRICS nations, uh, which makes sense. The BRICS is very much ascendant right now, and Brazil is one of its core members. So, may as well cash in on your your ground floor opportunities here. Uh, it's a little more difficult for them being that Brazil is on this side of the ocean and all the other BRICS members are a lot closer with the exception of South Korea. South Korea is pretty isolated as well. But with massive Chinese investment in Africa and increasing Russian investment in Africa as well, it's not too far-fetched to see a sort of bridge being built from Eurasia through Africa down to South Africa, South Africa, the country, and with this East African Federation, uh, well, this East African community as it is right now, it wants to be a federation at some point, it's just community right now, uh, and the Congo, the big one, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is a part of that East African Federation, which really just makes it the Middle African Confederation or, or Federation or community, whatever the hell it is, <laughs> whatever the hell it is. But with the addition of Congo to that East African community, that means you can run a rail line straight across the continent, you know, horizontally. Because Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, has a port on the Atlantic Ocean. And of course, every, almost every other country on the East African side of the East African community has coastal frontage on the Indian Ocean. Meaning that with a little bit of funding from the Belt and Road and some really good ingenuity, you can build a rail line straight across. Now you're talking an easier integration of Brazil into this economic cooperation and really getting in on development opportunities in Africa and finding markets for Brazil's raw materials, which is its primary main export, uh, export aside from, you know, food. And Africa does love them some food. There are some serious opportunities there. Uh, and 
that would very much commingle into integrating South Africa into the into the BRICS further into the BRICS as well. So I see Brazil is probably going to try to take advantage of this emerging multipolar world order, which is rising faster and faster and faster, and perhaps trying to solidify their place in the BRICS, especially at this time when the BRICS are expanding so rapidly. And given that the next BRICS meeting is in South Africa, I think that the South Africans will probably attempt to do the same as well. We'll see what the South Africans do. But yeah, we have that happening. We have the New Zealand Prime Minister, meanwhile, Chris Hopkins, deciding to attend the next NATO summit. Now, what in tarnation New Zealand is going to visit the NATO summit for is beyond me. Like, again, it just as it doesn't make sense for Europe to be involved in Asia, it doesn't make sense for New Zealand to be involved in NATO. I mean, you're disqualified just based off the name of the NATO. What does NATO stand for? The North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Well, New Zealand is neither North Atlantic, <laughs> North or Atlantic. They're neither North or Atlantic. They're in the Pacific. So what exactly are they going to do with NATO? I have no clue, but he, he wants to go. So we'll see what he does there. Perhaps they're going to beg him for his weapons so they can give it to Ukraine, a country that is not even in NATO. So don't you just love when countries have common sense? Anyway, we have the EU seeking a trade agreement with Indonesia. They say this is meant to sort of build a block, meant to counter China. Everything's about countering China, and, uh, which is how you know not to take these people seriously. <laughs> and and I mean that. Like, if your goal is to counter China by making a trade deal with a country whose largest trade partner is China, well, and you don't produce anything while the Chinese are still the workshop of the world, you're not countering anything. <laughs> You're just making an indirect connection to China. You're creating an indirect dependency on China by partnering up with a country that is dependent on China. Like, uh, you want to if you want to counter China, you have to start building stuff. You have to start manufacturing. That's literally it. Building bases on the other side of the other, other of the world, trying to build half a million military alliances, throwing out hundreds of billions of dollars on other people's infrastructure. That's not going to counter China. You want to counter China, you have to build up your own economy, which is what the Chinese were doing for the past few decades prior to the Belt and Road, prior to all these major moves that they're doing right now. So until we see people's talking about economic development in their own country, there is literally no prospect of you countering China. And the only person I hear talking about that is Trump. And here's the thing about Trump. He doesn't want to go fight a war with China. He wants to make a deal with China, which is the craziest thing. But I, I just have to wait about a, about a year and a half, just about get on my glorious leader back. But yeah, and last but not least, we have Israeli citizens continuing to protest against the judicial reforms in their country. The judicial reforms being uh, essentially would grant the executive branch or Netanyahu more control over the judiciary. Uh, and they don't want that. They don't want that. They want the reforms. They do want some of the reforms but not the reforms that he is putting forward, which would be him having more control 
and they don't want that. They want the judiciary cleaned, not controlled. That's sort of the, the best way I can put that. And so we will see what becomes of that. And at some point, perhaps we'll see the Israelis we'll see the Israelis make a change in foreign policy, maybe, potentially. And the other reason I bring up the foreign policy is because the, the region around them is changing incredibly rapidly, but I don't see any attempt on the side of Israel to adapt to that change. And at some point, the lack of adaptation is going to bite them in the ass. So we will see what happens, but for the time being, and I, I can't even say they're distracted by this. I, I was about to say that for the time being, they seem distracted. But even when they weren't distracted by this, they didn't show any sign of wanting to change their policy. So we'll just have to keep our eyes on Israel. But that, my lovely listeners, is the rapid fire news. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start with that Pentagon leak. So last week, a number of uh, documents were uh, <laughs> leaked to a Discord server. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> now, the, the suspect nature of the circumstances by which we got these documents aside, I think it was a plant, and I think it was deliberate. The, the tomfoolery on how we got these documents aside, they have given us some rather neat information to work with. Uh, neat for us here over, you know, on this side of the ocean, of course, and us here on this podcast, and, you know, me, because it's free content, but, you know, if, you know, it's nothing personal, you know, business, but, but uh, we found out a number of things. We found out that the U.S. government is spying on the Ukrainian government. Now, what exactly they're spying on, we don't know, but perhaps if they're doing something useful, they'll figure out where all of our shit went. All, all those 130-something billion dollars, the tens of billions of dollars of military aid and equipment, and what happened to it, and why the Ukrainians are getting pooped on. Perhaps if they're doing something useful, we'll figure that out, but knowing our intelligence agencies, they are most likely doing the most absolutely useless and worthless thing they could possibly be doing. They're probably wondering if Zelensky believes in gender ideology. So I have no faith in that, uh, but they are being spied on. So perhaps, perhaps our intelligence agencies know what happened to all of our stuff and where it went. Uh, we also found out that there are no more HIMARS rockets, which are en route to Ukraine. Now, if you remember, there was a big deal made uh, around this time last year about HIMARS being sent to Ukraine, and uh, the big game changer. They were going to turn the tide of the war, and here we are a year later, and there are no more HIMARS rockets being sent to Ukraine. They're not even in the pipeline, you know, in transit. There's just, there's just no more. They're not going to be reinforced, which means that eventually the HIMARS rockets will just, the, all the HIMARS artillery pieces that have been given to Ukraine will just not be usable because they won't have the proper rockets. So that's an entire line of artillery gone within the next few months to weeks. We found that out, um, which is sort of indicative of this next piece of information. 
uh well one of the other pieces of information that i found incredibly useful and alarming quite honestly i was not expecting that and that we'll be getting into that when we talk about what the leak means for ukraine's war effort and specifically uh in specific but we learned that ukraine is losing most of its elite units in the battle for Bakhmut. then there was speculation about this that they were sending in their best men just to get ground down you had the russians saying it you had a number of outlets saying it but here we have this leak uh, corroborating that as well so from three different angles i think we it's safe to say that the ukrainians are in fact using up their elite units in the battle of Bakhmut. and again for what for what reason is why did they have to die on this hill when there is a viable defense line not that far back from Bakhmut. Like I talked about the Kalyanivka line, which is what I call it, which basically stretches from Kramatorsk through Druskivka and going all the way down to Konstantinivka. Uh, you have the river, you have rough terrain, and then you have urban terrain, which stretches conveniently along, almost along the entire length of that line that I've just sort of laid out to you. Like, there is a somewhat viable defensive position not that far back from Bakhmut and they're being pushed back to that line anyway you have a river rough terrain and the urban environment and the urban environment stretches along the river and beyond that point there's no more rough terrain so if you were going to dig in you may as well use the river I mean why are you fighting in Bakhmut for but I suppose the talk of Bakhmut being this major hub of logistics and this major uh, linchpin in the Ukrainian defense in Donbass has to be true then. It has to be true. You see these articles coming out talking about how Bakhmut is, an, is of no strategic importance. Well, if it's of no strategic importance, then you've lost tens of thousands of men for nothing. For nothing. Because the Russians haven't lost tens of thousands of men in Bakhmut. They've barely lost tens of thousands in the war in general. Ukraine has just been bled dry in this battle, this one battle. So if it's of no strategic importance, then that benefits Russia. Because the Russians have lured the Ukrainians into a battle that they didn't need to fight. And then destroyed their army in that battle. It's like sort of how the, the battle of the... What was it? Was it the Battle of the Marne or the Battle of Ypres? I forget which one it was in World War One, uh, but the German objective was to bleed the French white, and I think, I think it was Ypres because the Marne was the battle that stopped the German offense and halted it and turned the war into a, a stalemate. So I think it was the Battle of Ypres, where the Germans wanted to bleed the French dry. But they ended up taking the position that they were supposed to leave open for the French so that the French would consistently reinforce and just get hammered by artillery. The Russians have pulled off what the Germans intended to do at that battle against the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians have just fell in hook, line, and sinker. They just keep reinforcing Bakhmut. And they just keep dying to the Russian artillery spam. And, the Rus uh, and on top of that, the Russians have more artillery and are putting up more shells every day than Ukrainians can afford to. And my golly, when I tell you what these leaks said, 
about Ukraine's uh, artillery output? Oh my goodness. Like, uh, it's it's shocking. All right, it, it's shocking. And considering that I'm I'm not the Ukraine's gonna win. I'm not the I stand with Ukraine, and I'm simultaneously not the oh Ukraine has no possible chance of ever doing anything to Russia. I have done my best to be as fair to the Ukrainians as possible. But my God, if these leaks are true. Ukraine is in real danger. But they've been, we, we already know that with the numbers we were working with, and I'll get into those leak numbers later on, but the numbers we've been working with have just been steadily falling off. We were working with 11,000 a day, 11 to 8,000. Then it was just around 8,000 a day. Then it was eight to 5,000 a day. Then it was five to three thousand a day, and I'm like, well, okay, we're 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 falling off in, in incredibly quickly here. So I'm gonna stick to my estimation being, you know, five to eight thousand. But you know, it there's a possibility that it could be five to three thousand, just so that you guys had a little bit of extra context and in case I was wrong. And it, the numbers just kept falling off, and then we're hearing that it's it's less than three thousand a day, and I'm like, well, what the hell is going on here? Like especially when you hear that oh Russia's been running out of ammunition and we hear this for an entire year and the Russians are putting up tens of thousands of artillery shells a day and the the Ukrainians can't even hit half of 10,000 anymore how are they going to win this what are they supposed to do with this offensive that they keep talking up and that offensive has been uh, postponed by the way and then, so it's not going to be a spring offensive unless they Unless it's a surprise offensive now. They say that they've delayed it, but they're actually going to go forward. They're going to go through with it and, you know, catch everyone by surprise. Possibility, but it's it's been postponed. So it's likely going to be a summer offensive. Uh, perhaps a late summer offensive at that as well. But it's with, with no rockets, with no artillery, you start to lose the artillery war, which means that the Russians can spend the Russian artillery can spend less time moving around to avoid your counterfire and more time sitting in one spot f just spamming you with their artillery shells, doing more damage. And we also talked last week about how Ukraine's air defense was running out of air defense missiles. So now you're starting to see, and we're, we've getting confirms of this now, like I said that we could start to see it. We're starting to see it now. The, ro the Russian Air Force coming in, and doing what I thought that they would do at the beginning of the war, but now we see that they were smart not to do that because of all the, it took this long to get through the Ukrainian air defense and really just to whittle away at their air defense missiles because they've gone through the missiles faster than they went through the air defenses. And without the missiles, the air defenses are worthless. You, you can see my plane, sure, but if you can't do anything about it, well, that just sucks to suck now, doesn't it? So with the Ukrainians having expended so much of their air defense missiles, courtesy of that Russian strategic missile bombing campaign that they started in October, here we are, let's see, October, November, December, and it's April now, so seven months later, not, not even, because April's not even over, April's not over. 
so really like six and a half months later, the Ukrainians are out of air defense missiles. The Russians used their missiles to force the Ukrainians to use up their own air defense missiles. And now the Russian Air Force can come in with these larger bombs that are doing more damage. Now you're starting to see more of the Russian hypersonic missiles coming into play. And this is exactly what I said would happen when you start to run out of the air defense missiles. Now the air war can open up. When area access denial, you don't when you don't have the ammunition for that anymore, you can no longer deny access to the area. So we're we're learning that that if you want to do area access denial, you you sort of need ammunition. And truth be told, that sh should have been common sense, and it probably was. I just didn't think about it enough to realize that. But when you run out of ammunition, you can't fight. If you run out of air defense missiles, you cannot defend your air. Because the Ukrainian Air Force isn't going to be able to stop these Russian jets. They, they might be able to shoot down a couple. But they're not going to be able to get through the entire Russian Air Force. They would need the support of the air defense to do that. But now we're starting to see that the air war is opening up. Because major holes are being blasted into the Ukrainian air defense either through missiles bombing their air defense systems or from their air defense systems just not having the ammunition to function because they're running out of missiles. So now the, the Russian Air Force is creeping into the conflict, dropping these big bombs, these big bombs that are doing a lot more damage. Now we're starting to see more of the hypersonics come back in. We saw a few at the beginning of the war and then the Russians really laid off. Now they're coming back in. And I think this is the beginning. I think this is the beginning. Because once you start to introduce the air power and your heavy-duty missiles, that's a softening up of the enemy defenses. Which means that in a few months' time, I believe we will see that Russian offensive materialize. And we might even see a, a sort of early version of it after the Battle of Bakhmut concludes, which looks like it is but a few weeks away. I say a few weeks because uh, the Ukrainians are fighting for their life and losing, but fighting for their life at this city. So it could take months to conclude the Battle of Bakhmut if we're being completely honest with ourselves, but the Battle of Bakhmut is coming to a close. The Ukrainians are being forced out of the city. And once they're out, we'll see the Russians advance because either perhaps the Russians might wait for the Ukrainians to get their artillery but when you have this leak that everyone can see unless this leak is a, a, a psyop unless it's deliberately been leaked as a as a deception campaign to fool and trick the Russians into attacking prematurely we we could see the Russians go on the offense and the Ukrainians just start to fall apart. And that would be a wrap. We could really start to see that. And with air power, with these missiles, with an overwhelming advantage in artillery, like we're talking well over the eight to one that we were talking for most of the war, we're talking a lot more than eight to one right now.
a lot more than eight to one. When I, I, I'm telling you, you're going to be surprised when I tell you this number. I don't mean to be too clickbaity about it. But even I was dumbfounded when I heard it. But you have these Ukrainians using up their entire military in Bakhmut. And for what? We, we've we've confirmed with as of these documents us again assuming that these this leak from the pentagon is true which yeah, i have to preface that assuming that it is true and i believe we have enough information to work with prior to the leak to sort of corroborate what we're seeing here according to the leak there's around 10 to fifteen thousand ukrainian troops in slash around bakhmut which is roughly comparable to the twenty thousand we've been working with and now after fumbling the ball, and this is the other part of this story here, after fumbling the ball, the U.S. government, and I believe that they fumbled it on purpose, the U.S. government is now trying to use this leak as an excuse to crack down on dissent, and and they say that it's for national security. They've been using national security a whole lot, I've noticed. That, that's, their new, that's their new favorite propaganda talking point. Uh, the propaganda press, the propaganda ministry. They're all using national security, national security. Oh, we have to do this for national security. And I heard it when they were doing the TikTok stuff. National security, it started to surface there. Now we're hearing them really hammering the national security stuff. So, you know, the propaganda machine is in full effect when everybody is using the same, the exact same terminology at the exact same time. It's a PSYOP. <laughs> so uh, we'll see what exactly they're using this propaganda campaign for. Uh but in a general sense, we can see that they're trying to use it to crack down the population. That, combined with a number of other things, they want to they want to crack down on our ability to speak on the internet. They want to crack down on our privacy on the internet by having control over all social media and your accounts in social media, which is part of the Restrict Act. They want to have control over everything. They want to have control over your information feed. That's what they want to use this for. That's what I, it seems like they want to use this for. They want to control information and control news outlets with this, this leak, because, oh, it's a national security threat, a national security threat. They want, to, they want to use this as an excuse to control information in the press. They want to use the TikTok ban and the act, the, the specific bill that they're going to use to ban TikTok or to control TikTok to restrict and control our access to social media which has all but replaced the mainstream media at this point even for news they want to use that to control your media they want to use excuse me they want to use this leak to control your news and information source sources and then you have in the background and i haven't talked too much about this i meant to get around to it on the last episode when we were talking about currencies but you have the central bank talking about a digital currency with Fed coin and uh, all these central bank digital currencies being floated from various central banks around the world. You, you get that. And they want to control and censor and monitor all of your financial transactions. It's like, no, get away from me. They're literally making the push for total government control right now. C control over your money in a way that they can't quite do, because once the money is printed, if I have a dollar in my hand, they can't stop me from using it. But if I'm using a card and I only have the digital currency from the central bank, they can go up, up, up. We don't want you buying that. Oh, you can't have that. Oh, you've bought too much of that. We don't like that. They, oh, you're buying weapons? What are you buying those weapons for? Oh, you got to get it registered. Up, 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 up. They, they, they want to control everything. They want to control everything. Oh, you've bought too much gas. Oh, your carbon credit go down. <laughs> 
and and that's the crazy part. I we talked about technology and how you use it. Digital currency could be used if you paired it up with sound money, which is money backed by physical real assets. If you had um sound money, a system of sound money paired up with digital currency in tech in theory technically there would be no upper limit to how valuable you can make your currency because the digital side of that can is fungible and fungible being you know divisible you can divide up into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces so from a, a digital aspect there is no limit to how small of a fraction of a singular unit of currency that you can make now if it's going to be backed up by real physical assets you are going to be limited in how much you can divide it i, I don't think anybody's going to take you seriously if you say hey i want to exchange 0.00001 for an atom of gold and no one's going to give you that atom of gold no one who's honest <laughs> but so it it would be there would be an upper limit in terms of how small you could make the the physical item the physical asset how how small you can divide that you know maybe a nugget of gold like a really 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 small nugget of gold like so that would be the limit and whatever the uh, corresponding amount in currency that would be that would be the limit to how valuable you can make your currency with digital currency but digital currency by itself isn't a problem but you have these control freaks who want to turn everything good for us into a problem and it's uh i can't stand these people but yeah you can you can we can see the push for total government control right now they want to use digital currency to, to control all your financial transactions and to monitor everything you buy and everything you sell oh you, you're up oh, what's that you're selling the wrong thing you're selling oil you're selling petroleum products. Oh, that's going on your carbon credit score. Mm -mm -mm. You're a bad citizen. You're a bad boy. <laughs> they want. They want to do that. They want to. They want to crack down on your social media accounts and steal your data. Uh, we're going to protect you from TikTok stealing your data by stealing your data. It's like okay, get away from me. They want to do that, and then they want to use this leak to say, look at how fast fake news can spread. We need to crack down on sources of information so that only uh, legitimate news can make it out. Well, who gets to define what legitimate news is? Who gets to define what legitimate news is? Need I remind you all of the tomfoolery that was legitimate and authoritative sources during the period 2020 to 2023? And all the nonsense we went through with that? They told us about lockdowns and masks and social distancing and the vaccines. We were still waiting. The vaccines, that, that one, I'll admit, we I haven't been 100% vindicated on in the mainstream press. I mean, if you're paying attention, you know, the, the side effects on that thing are just lethal. And only after the vaccine did we get sudden death syndrome. Sudden death syndrome. My All these young, healthy people who are fitter than me having sudden heart attacks and they all were vaccinated okay whatever you say spike protein oh, gain of function or oh, there was no there was no gain of function it came from wet markets don't look at the lab of virology in this city 
that we're telling you the virus came from, that's racist. <laughs> that's racist. No, it came from the wet markets because the Chinese are dirty. They eat raw food on the wet market because somehow that's less racist. <laughs> and somehow that's more believable. Okay. Okay, whatever you say. But seriously, all those lies we were told to our face. All those lies. And we're, now we're supposed to trust the government when they talk about we need authoritative sources so that fake news can't spread. <laughs> like, get out of here. But you can see what the agenda is, if you're paying attention. And their agenda is total 100% control. I don't think they're going to get it, but they're going to try. They're still they're using all these mass shootings. There was just recently another one in uh, Alabama, I believe. They're using all these mass shootings to try to justify taking guns away from people when arming the population is the solution. If gun control worked, Chicago would be one of the safest cities on the planet. But you and I both know that it ain't. And I'm sure that you are just as aware as I am that even at the height of the Afghan war, more people were dying in Chicago from people just getting shot by criminals. So gun control is verifiably and observably not going to solve this problem. But it won't stop them from trying to get control over your ability to defend yourself. And we're talking at the, at the same time they want to give uh, free releases. They want to give jail breaks to criminals who kill people and violate the law. They want to give the criminals eighth and ninth and tenth chances after killing people, but you're not allowed to have a gun. And if you defend yourself from the criminal that they re that the DA is releasing from jail, you're the one who goes to jail. But guess what? You don't get the same treatment, now do you? So, yeah, we can see what the agenda is. They want chaos. So they can use the chaos that they create and they can use the mess that they make to justify us giving them more power. Which is exactly why we have to say no. Which is exactly why we have to say no. And so I do say no. I don't consent to any of this. They can... They need to read a book called the U.S. Constitution. But that's what I have to say on that. But now what I want to get into, and I hinted heavily at this uh, just a few moments ago, was that leak and what it means for Ukraine's war effort. And I'll cut to the chase here and say it ain't good. It is not good at all. But the long story is... That Ukraine, according to this leaked information, is apparently, and this is the number that sent my jaw to the fucking floor when I heard it, the Ukrainians are apparently only firing around 1,000 shells a day. N the leaked documents specifically say that within this 24-hour period of time that they were specifying, Ukraine had fired 1,104 shells within a 24-hour period. And during that time, and this was not very far and very long ago, mind you, I believe it was like in March that this data was extrapolated from, 1,104 shells a day within a 24-hour period. And at that time, the Ukrainians had 9,000. 788 shells in store 
That's devastating. Now, Alexander of the Duran pointed out, and this is, uh, again, why I tell you guys, you, you, you got to watch the Duran. You got to watch the Duran. But Alexander of the Duran pointed out that since Ukraine is constantly being resupplied by NATO, it is unlikely that they will reach zero artillery shells. So it's they're not nine days away from running out of artillery shells like the numbers would suggest on first glance. Uh, which is an inside that probably would have taken myself a few more days to reach. But, you know, again, that this is why we have the Duran. This is why we have reliable sources so to lean on to cover for our own lack of insights. But this info, this info brings with it some serious, serious questions. The first one that comes to my mind is... How on earth do the Ukrainians plan on carrying out this this offensive that they've been talking about, that everybody's been talking about, that the, the White House and the Pentagon and that all the mainstream media and the, the Ukrainians themselves have been talking about, that the Russians have been preparing for? How on earth are they going to carry out this offensive? Because in my eyes, I, I, I just can't help but ask at this point, what offensive? I mean, we know. I, I mentioned uh, in the last in the last segment that they they've postponed the offensive, but shoot, they may as well cancel the damn thing with numbers like these. Uh, and I think I know why they haven't. You know, they, America's giving them half a million shells. We borrowed borrowed half a million from the the North, I, I almost said the North Koreans. They we borrowed half a million from the South Koreans, and we're gonna give them half a million shells. Whether those are South Korea's shells or our own shells, either way, we're probably going to end up giving half a million shells to the Ukrainians because that was sort of the whole purpose of the purchase or the, the borrowing, should I say. So until those arrive, there's not going to be an offensive. That, so how, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Because we don't know how long it's going to take for those shells to get there. 1,000 shells a day isn't going to cut it. They're in an incredibly precarious situation right now. So what's what's the game plan here? Wait for the shells to come in and then what? They went through uh, millions of shells already. We, we already gave them 2 million that I know of. What's the game plan here? Like, if the Russians force the Ukrainians into a battle by going on the offensive themselves, what are the Ukrainians going to do? Because you, you're, you're not going to sit there firing a thousand shells a day when the Russians are pressing you from all sides. You're going to have to expend more, but then they really will run out of shells if the Russians attack. And with this leak being so public, the Russians have undoubtedly read and access the exact same information I'm giving you. So they know if they attack right now, if this information is true, and they'll have unlimited amounts of other information to work with to corroborate the truth of this, I'm just, I have to, you know, speculate to the best of my ability. But if this information is true and the Russians go on the offensive, it's a wrap. The Ukrainians will actually run out of our ammunition. They will actually run out of artillery. 
they will use up all the NATO artillery the second it comes across the border. And then they'll just they'll use them up for like two hours and then they just have to sit there for the rest of the day getting beaten like a battered wife. It What's the game plan here? And they're still and they're still not talking peace. Zelensky just turned down another offer for mediating a peace that was offered by Iraq. So if you're not going to negotiate peace, you have run out of shells, you know, functionally. They have functionally run out of shells. If you're firing a thousand a day while your opponent is firing twenty to forty thousand shells a day, potentially more, you. You've lost. Ukraine has lost the artillery war. They have definitively, objectively lost the artillery war. And there's no coming back. They were already in in an underdog position throughout most of the war. Now they've just lost. They have 10,000 shells in stock and they're using 1,000 a day. If the Russians attack, the Ukrainians will have to bring up the number of shells that they're shooting back. Or else they'll just have to give up every position that they're being pressed on. But if they use two, maybe 3,000 shells a day, you're talking running out in less than a week, like actually hitting zero for brief periods of time before the reinforce comes in from the Europeans and from the Americans. We have no idea how long it's going to take for those half a million shells that America's promising to get to Ukraine, we have no idea if the Europeans are even going to be successful in getting those million shells to Ukraine, and I I don't think they will. South Korea was one of the big biggest players on the list of countries that they could have gotten the shells from, and we're, we've already eaten up that market share. The South Koreans don't even want to give the shells to Ukraine in the first place. So where, where are the shells going to come from? Where, where are the shells going to come from? Is, is this half a million that we're giving Ukraine the last gasp, the last breath of fresh air before they just lose? Half a million more shells just to lose? What's the game plan here? Is it just to lose as slowly as possible? You're not going to negotiate a peace. You're clearly not going to win the Battle of Bakhmut. You're not going to exchange Bakhmut for the lives of your soldiers. You're not going to say, hey, let's have a... a a p- temporary ceasefire so we can pull our troops out and get them to a better defensive line. You're not even going to do that. You're just going to sit there dying in Bakhmut and while you're out of artillery, you're out of air defense missiles, you're out of everything. What? What's the goal here? What's the objective? I just, I don't see it. I, I don't see it. I asked the question literally months ago, why Bakhmut? And even now, I still don't see it. Like, let's say that Bakhmut was that important. Okay, well, you've lost 85 to 90% of the city now. So what good is it going to do you to hold on to the 10% that you have remaining? When you're out of ammunition, they cannot Stalingrad this. The Soviets had a massive superiority in ammo and supplies. They just had issues getting it to where it needed to be. And they had a parity of men. They had a parity of men. That's part of the reason they were able to fight and hold on to Stalingrad. 
And then they outflank the Germans from both sides. Ukraine does not have the men, the ammunition, or the artillery, or the equipment, or the air power, or anything to pull off a Stalingrad. You don't win Stalingrad just by dying in the city. You have to go on the counteroffense. Ukraine doesn't have anything left for the counteroffensive. And seeing these numbers, I'm left asking, what was the point of even talking about a counteroffensive? Was the counter was all that talk about a counteroffensive coming this spring? Was that the deception? Was that the, the misinformation campaign? Is that why the government's so upset that this leak came out? Because it exposed that propaganda? Because with numbers like these, there is no counteroffensive. Because if you go on the offense, any offensive Ukraine does will inevitably mean expending more shells every day than the 1,100 that they're currently sitting at, which is uh, by itself a bit a massive disaster just waiting to happen. Again, all it will take is some meaningful pushback from the Russians, and that entire house of cards is going to come down because you have to fire more shells if you're going to actually defend the positions. So if the Russians go on the offensive, the Ukrainians are fucked. But if the Ukrainians go on the offensive right now, they're also screwed. Because if they go on the offense, you're going to have to use at least five to 10,000 shells a day to compete with the Russians so that you can give your attacking force some punching power. But if they did that, again, they would literally run out of artillery in a day or two. They cannot launch this offensive until those half a million shells arrive from America. We don't know when that's going to be. We don't know how long that's going to take. Even if it gets to Ukraine, it has to be distributed, and the Russians have been bombing their railroads. They've been bombing their supply hubs. So how long is that going to take? It's, we're, we're looking at a summer offensive in the best-case scenario for the Ukrainians. And at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if they just take the ammunition and then sit there preparing for a protracted war. A more protracted war. Hoping and praying that the Russians don't just blow up the supply depots that they store all this artillery in. Because with a massive influx like this, the Russians are going to see it. They're going to see where the artillery goes. Especially since we everyone knows that it's going to go through Poland first. The Russians can see everything. And now with the Russian Air Force being increasingly freed up to exert control over Ukrainian skies, we're going to see the Russians start hitting deeper and deeper behind enemy lines with more pow- with more and more powerful bombs. What is the game plan here? I just I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Like if we assume the best for Ukraine right now, if we assume the best, and these numbers have just blown apart and me my previous assumptions of best for the Ukrainians where I saw they they could up the number to like five, eight thousand a day if they wanted to, but they were just conserving artillery for the for the counteroffensive. If these numbers are true, they're <laughs> oh boy, was I wrong to give them that benefit of the doubt. But I'm still gonna do it. I'd rather be wrong because I overestimated even while trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'd rather be wrong in that way than to say, oh yeah, they're gonna do it and then and then we find out they couldn't do it. But let's assume, again, even though every time I do this, we end up having to revise the number down. 
but let's assume the best case scenario for the Ukrainians right now. Let's assume that these these 500,000 shells arrive from America. Let's assume that the Europeans pull through and get them those million shells. Let, let's just assume that. We get a, a million and a half shells a day. Uh, not, not a day, but a million and a half shells in total that the Ukrainians can use to defend themselves. If we assume that, and that is one massive assumption, if we assume that, that would buy them, let's see, one half, I have, I have my calculator right here. Although, truth be told, I really shouldn't. That's like 1,500 days. But, you know, just for good measure, we're in, divided by the specific number, 1,500,000. Divide that by 1,104. Well, that's 1,358 days at their current rate of consumption. But at their current rate of consumption, they're, they are prone to getting pushed by the Russians at any moment in time. So they're going to have to use more than that. Although this could buy them nearly four years of fighting. Now, granted, at that point, their manpower reserves will run out before their artillery do. But let's assume something more realistic, which is that either they go on the offensive or the Russians go on the offensive. I assume that the Ukrainians will at least have to put up 5,000 shells a day, perhaps 10. So if we assume that, again, still keeping the number of shells that they're expending a day to a, a low but effective number, because they, they they were doing all right when they were at five to 8,000 and three to 5,000. They were doing fairly well for themselves. So if we take one and a half million and then divide it by 5,000 a day, that buys them a year of sustained combat. Uh, well, not, not even really. It's 300 days, but a year. If the half a million shells from America and the one million shells that the Europeans have promised materializes. But it is more likely that only that half a million is going to materialize because the Europeans, where are they going to get it from? Because they're not producing it. They're trying to buy it from other people. And South Korea was one of the biggest suppliers. And the South Koreans weren't going to give it to them. They don't even want to give it to us. We have to borrow it from them, which is why, again, Alexander speculates that we're probably going to give half a million American shells to the Ukrainians rather than the half a million that we're borrowing from South Korea. We're just borrowing it from them to compensate for what we're going to give up instead of just giving it up and being down half a million. But, and that again goes to show just the position that NATO was in and why I believe NATO would not win a war against Russia. We'd run out of our ammunition. We would run out. And then we'd be looking goofy as the Russians just ran roughshod over all of Eastern Europe. And then we'd complain about Russian imperialism. Well, perhaps we shouldn't have started the war. But, even if that million and a half shells between the million that Europe is promising and the half million that is on its way from America right now, even if all of those artillery shells materialize for the Ukrainians, in the second that they get put into a, a higher intensity conflict, they're going to be consuming, if we're assuming 5,000 a day, that's 300 days of sustained conflict. Maybe more if the conflict you know, dies down every now and then. But it is more likely that only the half a million is going to materialize, which really just gives you 100 days 
of sustained conflict. Just 100. That's the summer. So they can fight it out at max capacity for the summer, and then that's it. So if the Ukrainians are really going to go on the offensive, they have until the end of the summer to get it done before they run out. They're already running out of air defense missiles, and there's there's no more missiles. There's no comparable number of air defense missiles coming for them as the artillery shells are, meaning that the air war will remain open while this is happening. So on top of Russian artillery bombing the Ukrainian artillery positions, you're going to have the Russian Air Force bombing Ukrainian artillery positions, which is going to make the whole thing untenable, even with these shells that they're going to have. They're just in such a, such an incredibly shitty situation. And that's assuming that they only go up to 5,000 a day. You're talking 50 days of intense conflict. If they go up to 10,000, if they, if they really try to compete with the Russians, uh, 150 days. If they get the million and a half shells and then have to you know, put up some real numbers in terms of artillery. But I just, I just don't see it. I, this might actually be the last gasp, no matter how you cut it, even if the Europeans pull through for them. If, if these leaks from the Pentagon are true, Ukraine is, they're going to be a spent force by the end of the summer. Uh, again, assuming that the offensive actually happens, they could just sit there and do nothing. That's also a possibility. Uh, the Russians are content to sitting there doing almost nothing as well. But the Russian air power is coming into play. So I imagine that that's going to lead to an eventual Russian land offensive. So at some point, someone's going to make an offensive, which means high-intensity conflict. And the second you get into that high-intensity conflict, the clock is going to start to tick for the Ukrainians. They will have anywhere from 50, if it's really, really high-intensity conflict, and they're firing 10,000 shells a day, they will either have 50 days of sustained combat, or if they, you know, moderate it at 5,000 shells a day, and they do get the one, the one and a half million shells, they could, they could fight it out for 300 days. Anywhere from 50 to 300 days, depending on how this goes. That's sort of the range that we're looking at, but it's more likely the 50 to 100 days is how much they're going to be able to sustain this effort. But at some point, one of these two powers is going to go on the offensive, which will mean high-intensity conflict. And the second that the high-intensity begins, you're talking, you will have flipped the hourglass over, and now Ukraine's time is going to be running up. That's what it looks like. That's really what it looks like. So that's that's Ukraine. And now you know why, uh, why even I was shocked by what those documents had to say about Ukraine. But now, for our last subject, I would like to talk about Sudan, a country we haven't talked about in a minute. But uh, yes, let's get into this. We have a very peculiar story. Now, we've talked about Sudan and the coup and then the counter coup. And, and it's been a while since I, so I'm not entirely up to snuff right now. But last week we had yet another attempted overthrow in the government, or or so it seems. That's what it looks like. 
uh, because last week clashes between the regular Army of Sudan and the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF of Sudan, which is essentially the militias, uh, which are sort of spread out across the country, clashes broke out. Now, as of now, 183 people have been wounded and 25 people have been killed, according to the Sudanese Doctors' Union. So, it's already been pretty lethal in terms of the damage done in human cost. And it is suspected that this may be a coup of sorts being carried out by the militias. It is also suspected that the U.S. may have a role in that. Uh, the Duran speculated that perhaps it's because the Russians were building a naval base in Sudan on the Red Sea. Maybe. And the U.S. trying to overthrow the government to keep that from happening. Maybe. I, I wouldn't put it past us. I mean, we have a track record of trying to overthrow people's governments, especially when they cozy up to Russia and China. But can't necessarily confirm the U.S. role in that right now, for now. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't put that possibility too far off to the side. But right for right now, we have what seems to be a power struggle between the men with guns, the military and the militias. And so far, the fighting seems to be contained to just the capital city of Khartoum. Uh, Khartoum and Omdurman, which is a, a city to the northwest of Khartoum, although in my view it seems more to be a suburb of Khartoum, again, the northwest right across the Nile from Khartoum. But the militias have also laid claim to the cities of El Obid, El Fashir, and Nial. So... Uh, Niel and uh, the entire state of West Darfur, which essentially those last four encompass the southwestern region of the country. That's farther away from the capital. The capital is sort of in the in the middle of the country, but towards the the east. And they've laid laid, laid claim to the southwest while there's fighting over the capital region. And the Sudanese Air Force has been conducting air reconnaissance. I don't think they want to do airstrikes just yet, but they have done air reconnaissance. They've encouraged civilians to stay indoors. They've called a holiday for banks and schools to, again, promote people staying indoors. Uh, and prior to the fighting, there were attempts at integrating the RSF into the army, which was supposed to be a part of the country's transition towards a democracy, away from the military governorship that it was currently on after the last coup. So if this does get resolved, it'll put the country back on track towards holding its elections, which will put in uh, duly elected representatives for the country to move forward. But if the fighting continues, we might have a full-blown civil war or potentially even a regional war. And I say a regional war because... In the capital, there were Egyptian soldiers who were present, I believe at the Egyptian embassy, but they are now being held hostage. And so that brings in the possibility that Egypt gets involved, either because something happens to their soldiers or out of fear that something may happen to their soldiers, and they conduct an operation to get them out. Now, it's a really long walk to get from the Egyptian border to Khartoum, like 
a really, really long walk. But from what I can tell, the Egyptians have not made any serious attempt or indication that that's something that they want to do. But again, you can't discount it because they do take these things seriously. Any real country would. So, and let's see. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's literally 700 kilometers away. Uh, but if we put that in real people terms, that's 446 miles. So a big distance, but if the Sudanese military is busy fighting themselves, essentially, against the militias, and considering that you're talking open desert aside from the Nile on the way to Khartoum, that's a fairly easy walk aside from the urban environments. But yeah, that's a, a very long walk if the Egyptians decide to get involved. But the Egyptians are not the only potential threat here because you also have South Sudan. They might get involved if the conflict gets intense enough. You have South Sudan. You have the potential that Ethiopia gets involved. And during Ethiopia's civil war, I was concerned that something would happen to the Renaissance Dam. And I was under the belief that should things get too hot, and I, I was firm in my belief that something was going to happen to the dam. I was firm in my belief that the Egyptians might want to do something to that dam while the Ethiopians were distracted. Because essentially the Ethiopians bought off the Sudanese with the promise of cheap energy from the dam. So they, they got them on side. So I was speculating that Egypt would get involved in that civil war. But here, you, we have a much more immediate danger, which that harm might come to these Egyptian soldiers. Now, the dam comes with the long-term danger of the Nile sort of shrinking, not drying up, but shrinking. And considering that about 90% of Egypt's population lives on or next to the Nile, that'd be uh, <laughs> a humanitarian disaster. But... With these troops being stranded in, uh, well, nearly a thousand miles away from Egypt, there's the potential for an Egyptian military intervention here. Now, again, I'm not, that's not me saying that it will happen. We don't know that. But there's the possibility because you have these troops here. There's also the possibility of an American intervention as well. Uh, we know how much America likes to involve itself in other people's conflicts, although I believe we are a bit uh, distracted by Ukraine at the moment, Ukraine and Taiwan, so I think the possibility of that is as low as it's going to get. But there is the potential for this expanding into a broader regional war, so it is something to keep our eyes on, and depending on who gets involved and at what time, it may even evolve into a proxy war between the multiple sides that get involved. Again, this... This can get messy really quickly, but we will just have to wait and see how it goes. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Ukraine is in danger. And, uh, well, they won't have fun, but we will have fun watching this together. Now, I've been your host, 
Hi, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.